Hey, it's Jen. Just a quick heads up before we start the show. The news is rapidly developing and things may have changed by the time you hear this episode. For the latest news, tune into your public radio station and follow updates at npr.org. You're listening to the 1A Podcast. Let's jump into the news roundup. The war in Ukraine has entered its third full week, and the U.S. is continuing to squeeze Russia's economy. Several big companies and news organizations left Moscow this week, either by choice or by force. What does Russia's increasing isolation mean, and is it helping Ukraine? We'll get into it, but first we start on Capitol Hill. Congress passed its first major government spending bill under the Biden administration, once again narrowly avoiding a government shutdown. Joining us is Joshua Meyer, a domestic security correspondent for USA Today. Josh, welcome. Thanks for having me, Jen. Also with us, Cheryl Gay-Stolberg, a Washington correspondent for The New York Times. Cheryl, always great to have you on. Thanks, Jim. And Anita Kumar, the senior editor of Standards and Ethics at Politico. Anita, thanks for joining us again. Great to be back. So this spending package is the first major spending package Biden has ever gotten to sign. Anita, any idea why this one managed to make it through a notoriously polarized Congress? (laughs) Eventually, one of them has to get through, right? Um, So, you know, Congress needed to fund the government to keep um, to keep the government funded and and operating. Um, But they had been working on this for months. This isn't something, although it did happen this week, it's not something that just has uh, been worked on. It's been months of negotiations um, as as Republicans and Democrats tried to come together. Um, What's interesting is that they did raise spending, right? They've increased spending both for defense and non-defense. And of course, that's been one of the big sort of philosophical differences here in what Republicans and Democrats want uh, wanted. And so that did include that. It did include aid for Ukraine and Eastern European countries, which was very important, did not end up including this COVID um, money that the White House had wanted, uh, which was a huge disappointment to Democrats. Now, the package was broken into two chunks. Uh, what was the strategy there? Well, I think it's generally done that way because the defense spending is always sort of looked at um, in a particular way. And so I think that that wasn't uh, too different, but they had different, um, different amounts of increases in spending in each of those two areas. Now, Democrats in the House say they had to leave out COVID relief aid to get it passed in time. And here's Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi. On the COVID relief bill, unfortunately, you had to have six, 60 votes in the Senate, and we couldn't get 60 votes without uh, taking money out of the state allocations that were in the uh, the rescue package. And that Republican obstruction required that we pass now taking it off this bill uh, to uh, separate legislation containing funding to continue the fight against COVID. Again, uh, sadly, the Republicans insisted that every penny uh, for the COVID be offset. Cheryl, how much COVID aid was ultimately cut and what will be the impact of losing it? Well, the White House initially asked for $22.5 billion in aid. Congress uh, whittled that down to $15.6 billion in a package that they thought was going to pass. But as you heard Speaker Pelosi say, uh, Republicans were insisting that that money be offset. And the way they were going to offset it, in part, was to take $7 billion from states. Governors balked and the whole thing collapsed. And this is a problem for the White House. The White House 
and the Biden administration are out of money for therapeutics and tests and vaccines, and they say they need to sign contracts if they want to uh, ensure an adequate supply of monoclonal antibodies, for instance. Those monoclonal antibodies uh, will be gone by May. The stock will be out. By July, the administration is going to run out of another antibody drug that is used to prevent COVID in immunosuppressed people. So inside the White House, the COVID response team is very nervous about this and fearing that, you know, it is possible that we could have another variant and they want to be prepared. So is there any chance the relief could come back up for another vote? You know, honestly, right now things look pretty grim. What I'm hearing is that it is possible that it might come up again the next time the administration asks for a Ukraine, uh, another Ukraine aid package. But, you know, we've just gotten uh, $14 billion in, in military and humanitarian assistance for Ukraine. That should last a while. So it's unclear how soon... Um, another package for Ukraine would come up, and thus it's unclear how soon another COVID vote would come out. It seems like Republicans and Democrats are really at an impasse over this. Mm-hmm. And it, it also seems that it stems from a Republican sentiment that they don't want to spend any more money on COVID and they think it's over. And a lot of public health experts don't think it's over. They think that we are having a lull, cases are declining, that's a good thing. But that the administration really does need to be prepared because this is an unpredictable virus, as we have seen. Now, you mentioned the $14 billion in Ukraine aid. According to the New York Times, it's double the amount the Biden administration asked for. We'll get it further into the U.S. and Ukraine in a bit. But do we know if this aid is for anything specific, Cheryl? Um, The aid is designated for specific things. About half of it will go to the Defense Department so that it can send troops to the region and defense equipment to Ukraine. I think um, about $4 billion or so would be humanitarian aid, and that is to provide support for refugees fleeing Ukraine and people who are displaced. There's need for emergency food assistance. I think there's some money in there, about $2 billion for um, economic aid to provide, you know, needs for uh, for Ukraine and, and neighboring countries like uh, cybersecurity and energy issues. Um, and also it includes some money, a small amount, relatively small in Washington standards, $25 million, for the U.S. Agency for Global Media, which is an independent federal agency um, to combat disinformation in newscasts um, abroad. Anita, before we move on, the Senate also passed a significant piece of legislation this week, the Postal Service Reform Act. What's in the bill and and why is it a priority? Well, this is a bill, it's a $107 billion bill that's really trying to modernize uh, the Postal Service. It's a bit controversial because this is something that the Postmaster General, and this is the sort of Trump, Donald Trump-aligned Postmaster General, had been pushing. And so uh, there were some Democrats who were skeptical of it. In the end, it went through, but it was changed. This bill was changed. So it really a, a deals with uh, putting it on a better financial footing. So it removes $57 billion in past due postal liabilities. It eliminates $50 billion in payments over the next uh, 10 years. So it 
it and it requires future postal retirees to enroll in Medicare. Um, so it's it's trying to basically make the postal service uh, more financially stable. There were a lot of other pieces that Republicans and Democrats talked about that were part of this package to really change some of the the ways that the postal service were working. Those some of those got through, but a lot of those didn't. And it's something that uh, they'll continue to talk about. It, but sort of was uh, pretty controversial. At this point, uh, President Biden has signaled that he intends to sign the legislation, so it it should go through. Well, let's move to Eastern Europe. This week, the Pentagon ruled out any U.S. participation in efforts to send warplanes to Ukraine. Sovereign nations can decide for themselves what they want to do, but uh, but this idea, the proposal of of transferring these jets to our custody, then for then transferring to Ukraine, um, that is something that we are not going to explore right now. That was Defense Department spokesperson John Kirby on Wednesday. Josh, so as Kirby just alluded to, the Pentagon's refusal was in response to a plan proposed by Poland. What was in that plan and what's its future now? Uh, Well, it's a good question. I think that uh, there's been some miscommunication uh, between the Pentagon and the State Department uh, because basically uh, Tony Blinken last week greenlit uh, the idea of transferring the planes um, uh, through Poland to Ukraine and then backfilling them with F-16s, giving Poland uh, much newer uh, U.S.-made fighter jets. But then when Poland uh, sort of surprised everybody by saying that they wanted to give the jets to the United States and then have them give them to Ukraine, uh, the United States balked on that. And so yesterday, Lieutenant General uh, Scott Barrier, who's the head of the Defense Intelligence Agency, Uh, testified on the Hill that the reasoning behind that is that they thought that this was part of an escalation ladder uh, in which uh, this was much more of a significant escalation than providing anti-aircraft missiles uh, and and other kinds of weapons. So uh, their concern is that Russia would take this uh, as a much more direct confrontation. Uh, uh, Fighter jets can cross over into Russian uh, territory, what Barrier said. Uh, And so they're very concerned that it sends the wrong message to Putin, uh, who is also very unpredictable. So nobody really knows where his red line is. And I think that they're very concerned about crossing it. So briefly, what does that mean moving forward? We don't know. I mean, I think, um, you know, uh, Vice President Harris is in Poland, uh, was in Poland yesterday in Romania today. Uh, She's trying to sort of smooth things out, I think, and and clean up, uh, as we said in the story, uh, you know, clean up the, the political messaging and figure out what to do. We'll get into more of the week's biggest headlines after the break. Remember to join future conversations, download our 1A Vox Pop app and leave us a voicemail. Support for NPR and the following message come from BetterHelp, offering online counseling. BetterHelp therapist Hesu Joe knows that lockdown has been hard on us as humans. We as people are hardwired to connect with others, which is why this whole time is so difficult. The connection that happens between people can be very powerful and how healing it can be to have a healthy relationship with someone. To get matched with a counselor within 48 hours and save 10%, go to betterhelp.com slash 1A. Support for NPR and the following message come from BetterHelp, offering online counseling. BetterHelp therapist Hesu Joe knows that lockdown has been hard on us as humans. We as people are hardwired to connect with others, which is why this whole time is so difficult. The connection that happens between people can be very powerful and how healing it can be to have 
a healthy relationship with someone. To get matched with a counselor within 48 hours and save 10%, go to betterhelp.com slash 1A. Over this last year and a half, the world's been through a lot. So on this season of the StoryCorps podcast, we'll hear stories reminding us that even when times are hard, we can still begin again. Listen to our new season wherever you get your podcasts. It's the News Roundup. We're rounding up some of the week's biggest headlines. Let's get back to the conversation. Well, Vice President Kamala Harris is in Eastern Europe on a diplomatic trip. She's in Romania today. She pledged more humanitarian support for Poland on Thursday and assistance in managing the wave of refugees crossing into the country from Ukraine. When we talk about humanitarian aid... It is because, yes, the assistance is necessary, but what compels us also is the moral outrage that all civilized nations feel when we look at what is happening to innocent men, women, children, grandmothers, grandfathers, who are fleeing everything they've known. More than two million people have fled Ukraine. The U.S. promised to help Poland handle the influx of refugees. But Cheryl, how exactly will we be doing that? Well, I think that, you know, Poland is asking for for direct assistance. I assume that's going to be cash assistance. Uh, Kamala Harris was sent there not only to talk about refugees, um, but also to kind of smooth over the frayed ties between Poland and the United States that had erupted over the uh, dispute over the the MiG fighters that Poland was going to send uh, through the United States to you to Ukraine, the offer that the United States rejected. Um, it became very complicated. Um, she went over there also to establish her own bona fides, I think, as a foreign policy person. You know, she came up through Congress as a domestic policy person. She was California Attorney General. Unlike Joe Biden, the president she serves, she does not have that much experience uh, in foreign affairs. And and so I think part of this trip was also to shore her up in a way and to position her as a kind of leader who can go overseas and talk about things like military aid, like humanitarian assistance. We know that Poland is uh, experiencing a flood of refugees and needs all kind of help from, you know, food assistance to cash assistance um, to support the, the vast influx of Ukrainians who are flowing across the border. Well, Russia continues to feel the economic heat after its invasion of Ukraine. McDonald's, Starbucks, Coca-Cola and Pepsi all announced on Tuesday that they are suspending business in the country. Josh, Putin has since threatened to nationalize these private companies' assets. It's a move that's alarmed even some Russian oligarchs. What would it mean for him to do that? Uh, You know, that's not clear right now. A lot of people are looking at that as a threat, uh, something that he's not really going to be able to pull off. Um, I think that it's just another example of how Putin... Uh, feels cornered by a lot of the, um, um, very taken by surprise by the unanimity of response, the sanctions around the world. Um, I'm not sure how he could really nationalize that. I mean, some of these companies are franchise-based like McDonald's. Um, I do know from traveling in the region that they're very, very popular. So if you shut down McDonald's in in countries like this, that's going to cause sort of a mild, uh, I mean, they have a lot of bigger things to worry about, but that's, you know, it's, it's a significant step for these countries to pull out. I don't think that 
Putin uh, really uh, knows what he's talking about and has really thought through the implications of trying to nationalize these companies, I think that they would probably just shut down. And they certainly don't have any fast food chains, uh, to my knowledge, that would take their place. So it's just another uh, weapon in the quiver uh, uh, you know, of sanctions and other efforts to try to influence Putin to back off. Well, and help us better understand, Josh, the balance of power between Rush- between uh, Putin and the oligarchs. That's, you know, that's a million-dollar question, Jen. Um, it had been uh, assumed by the U.S. intelligence community and others that Putin controls the oligarchs. You know, when they went to a capitalist system, these people were able to benefit immensely from that. They were all given... Um, uh, sort of, um, uh, you know, controlled stakes in, in various sectors of the economy, monopolies, as it were, and, and were able to become billionaires as a result. And then at one point, Putin said, I will take all that away from you, which is something he can do if you don't uh, do what I tell you to do. But some of the oligarchs like Oleg Deripaska, Roman Abramovich, um, you know, some of the most influential ones and longtime allies of Putin have spoken out publicly against the invasion. They've said this will not stand. Uh, And if enough of them flip and become opponents of of Putin, he's in real trouble. They, They wield immense power in Russia and around the world. And I just want to note the UN is now saying there's 2.5 million Ukrainian refugees. Now, Western news organizations have left Russia in droves after a new censorship law was passed last week. Under the law, independent journalists could receive prison time for up to 15 years for calling the war in Ukraine a war or an invasion. CBS, CNN, the BBC and the New York Times are among the outlets that have suspended reporting in Russia. NPR is continuing to assess the situation. Anita, what does the suspension of these independent news organizations in Russia mean for the kind of information now available to Russians? Yeah, it's a it's a really important um, situation or, or it's a really big problem, actually, because, as you know, the Biden administration and others have been saying from the beginning for weeks, months, really, that Russia is putting out a lot of misinformation. Um, they've, they've been very concerned about that from the beginning. Remember, before the invasion, Russia was saying, well, look, we, we can do this because, and they had listed all sorts of things that the United States said wasn't true, like uh, Ukraine is, gonna in, is going to attack, um, you know, that there was humanitarian problems in Ukraine. So um, there's a lot of worry that if media outlets pull out or don't have that reporting out there that no one is really going to know what's going on. And uh, so it's interesting because some have decided to pull out. You mentioned NBR. There are others that don't really know what to do at this point. Uh, They don't want to uh, be there and put their journalists in jeopardy. They also don't want to be there and, you know, be worried about what is said. So uh, it's a real predicament. And I think media outlets are still trying to figure out sort of what the next step is. Josh, anything to add? Well, yeah. I mean, I think one of the most significant parts of this um, is the social media component of it. Um, well, first of all, BBC has now resumed reporting uh, in in Russia, partially because of this double-edged sword where they feel like people really need that access. I think the other day, the biggest Google search in Russia uh, was for BBC, mm-hmm. just because they're dominant in the region. But, you know, when you shut down access to Facebook and other social media platforms like Russia's doing, 
Um, that is actually where a lot of those people get their information, and it's where they communicate, and they're able to sort of see what's happening outside of Russia. So, you know, when Russia blocks access to Facebook, um, you know, that's not something that Facebook did on their own, but it's a very serious concern because the Russians uh, basically are just getting spoon-fed information from the government, and and a lot of them are led to believe that this is basically uh, a rescue mission in Ukraine, not not a, a war crime in progress. Well, this week, one more big sanction hit Russia from the White House. Today, I'm announcing the United States is targeting the main artery of Russia's economy. We're banning all imports of Russian oil and gas and energy. That means Russian oil will no longer be acceptable at U.S. ports, and the American people will deal another powerful blow to Putin's war machine. That was Biden speaking on Tuesday. Biden is also weighing putting new sanctions on Russian lawmakers. Josh, why make this move now, the significance of the timing? Um, well, and, you know, the Biden administration has said all along that what they're trying to do is rolling sanctions and escalating sanctions, that if you impose all the sanctions at the beginning, then you're left with no leverage. So I think they're trying to... Um, you know, do this incrementally. Uh, There's a lot of people pushing back on that and saying you really need to sort of unload everything now and stop this, you know, the genocide that's really happening in Russia. uh, I mean, excuse me, in Ukraine. Um, So I think that that's why they're doing it. But I also think that they needed to take the temperature in Congress and find out if they could get the support for it, because they need Congress to do this too. And it does seem like Congress is on board. You had a lot of Republicans yesterday, uh, really outraged, um, testifying at committees, holding news conferences, saying that the, the Biden administration needs to do more. So I think that they would be on board with this. How big of an impact could this have on the Russian economy, Josh? I think it would have a huge economy on this. I mean, everybody has always said that, that the you know, the, the favored nation status and the trade status and, and even the oil sanctions are, are crippling b- blows. And so the problem with that is it's kind of a bludgeon approach where you really do hurt everyday Russians instead of just the government. But um, at this point, I think that they're looking at that as a way to possibly stop Putin because nothing else is really working uh, so far. So, um, but yeah, I think it would, uh, you know, uh, like you mentioned, uh, there's only two other countries where we have this kind of draconian measure, and they're both really, really suffering uh, because of it. Anita, follow up on what Josh is saying there. What's the temperature in Congress right now when it comes to more sanctions being levied against Russia? Well, there's definitely some that are are lobbying the administration to to go that route. I mean, you know, remember there are some, particularly Republicans, who were critical of of President Biden for not doing more in the lead up, right? Saying that he should have he should have taken stronger action beforehand as a deterrent. So now that we're at this place, um, there are people, there are lawmakers that are lobbying him to do more, uh, be more aggressive. Now, of course, a lot of this is politics, right? They're you know comparing to him to to Donald Trump. They're comparing him uh, to to others. They're look thinking about the midterms, but they're you know some of it is philosophical, some of it's political, and the Biden administration is sort of weighing what else they can do. It's clear that the United States has decided, you know, yes, there's going to be humanitarian aid. Yes, there is going to be uh, things that that it's sending Ukraine, but that the economic hardship is really what its number one priority is, you know, trying to to really hurt Russia. And they think that this will work. And so I think that they are looking at all sorts of things. In his announcement about banning Russian oil imports, Biden gave a stern warning to oil and gas companies, too. To the oil and gas companies and to the finance firms that back them, we understand Putin's war against the people of Ukraine is causing prices to rise. We get that. That's self-evident. But, 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 
It's no excuse to exercise excessive price increases or padding profits or any kind of effort to exploit this situation or, Amer or American uh, consumers. Exploit them. Russia's aggression is costing us all. And it's no time for profiteering or price gouging. The average price of gas in the U.S. is now more than $4.30 a gallon. Anita, we, we get a relatively small amount of our oil from Russia. So why are we seeing such a jump in gas prices right now? Yeah, it, it, it's, a, it's a couple different things that we mentioned before, that Russia is the key producer and exporter of oil and gas sort of globally. Um, and And that Western allies sanctions have so far sort of carved out room for uh, some of that to continue that it's self-sanctioning. Some people, they don't want to have Russian products, right? And this is going to hurt. So this is not just the United States thing. This is overall. This is actually really interesting, though, because as as the United States, as, as we've seen gas go up, it's actually, I think, $5 um, in California. You have Republicans saying, hey, this isn't just about what's happening the last couple of weeks. It was already going up. And of course, that was true. If you'll remember, we have seen the gas uh, prices tick up slowly. And, and we've seen Republicans say, look, uh, President Biden is blaming this solely on Ukraine-Russia situation, but it's actually uh, his economic policies, things that he's done over the last year to to keep these up. So uh, we've seen that divide there. It's uh, we're also seeing that the for those that forecast what the prices are going to be, showing that the average price of gas is going to reach uh, even higher, um, and it's going to re probably remain over four dollars until sort of uh, end of the year, to, to, towards the end of the year, November, December. But Josh, we heard President Biden there include that warning about price gouging. Why did he need to do that? Well, uh, you know, there's a congressman, John Garamendi from California, who said beginning a few weeks ago that the price of gas is going to go up um, because of the conflict, but that he wants an investigation into the gas companies because he thinks that there is some price gouging going on. And it's hard to tell exactly uh, what he's basing that on, but uh, there is a real concern that when you have crises like this, that especially when you have a uh, economic sector like the oil and gas industry that's they're 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 if you notice all their prices are always around the same price anyway so you know if there's any coordination on their part to jack up the prices uh, more than they need to be because of this. So, you know, that's a very serious concern if that's happening. It's really hitting Americans in the pocketbook uh, at a time when they don't really don't need it. So, um, you know, I think that it's a valid concern and I think it's something that probably should be looked into. So I think that probably plays into why Biden, uh, you know, at least Biden's mentioning that. And is there a clear understanding, Anita, of how oil and gas companies are faring right now financially? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't really know. I mean, it's I think that a lot of this is moving really fast, right? This was just the other day and we're seeing similar um similar policies around the world, you know, some of the United States allies and so you know, we're going to continue to see see how this impacts them. Cheryl, before we move on, what are you watching for in in the coming week or so as we continue to move through this crisis? Particularly, you know, specifically about the war in Ukraine. 
Yes, so I think what I'm watching for is is continued bipartisanship, and I've been very struck by by even when there's pressure among Republicans, say, for the president to do more in the way of sanctions or in the way of sending planes. You're also hearing similar sentiments from Democrats. Nancy Pelosi actually said this week at her press conference that she she knew she wasn't a military strategist, but she saw those lines of Russian tanks, and boy, she really wished that we could send planes. And we saw 40 uh, Republican senators send a letter to the White House saying, you know, we'd like you to reconsider um, the the decision on planes. Um, I think that that is very striking. And I also am interested in seeing the, the support among the American public. The president basically made an appeal with respect to gas prices to say, hey, you know, prices, I'm doing this, taking this, you know, making this oil sanction on Russia, and we've all got to maybe live with it a little bit and maybe sacrifice. And I do think that there's sentiment in the public to sacrifice for the needs of the Ukrainian and the Ukrainians and for that cause. We're rounding up some of the week's biggest news, and we'll be back with more in just a moment. A reminder to have your questions answered on future topics, or just to let us know what you think, tweet us at 1A. Support for NPR and the following message come from BetterHelp, offering online counseling. BetterHelp therapist Hesu Joe knows that lockdown has been hard on us as humans. We as people are hardwired to connect with others, which is why this whole time is so difficult. The connection that happens between people can be very powerful and how healing it can be to have a healthy relationship with someone. To get matched with a counselor within 48 hours and save 10%, go to betterhelp.com slash 1A. Over this last year and a half, the world's been through a lot. So on this season of the StoryCorps podcast, we'll hear stories reminding us that even when times are hard, we can still begin again. Listen to our new season wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the News Roundup. Let's get back to the conversation. President Biden spoke earlier today. He said the U.S. will revoke Russia's most favored nation trade status. He also promised G7 countries will target the, quote, ill-begotten gains of Russian oligarchs. And that leads us to this tweet from Benjamin, who says, when will we seize oligarch property? Roman Abramovich has untouched real estate in New York City. Josh, go ahead. Well, yeah, I mean, I think the Biden administration, um, some of the Republicans on the Hill have criticized them for being, excuse me, one step behind Europe uh, on a lot of these uh, measures against Russia. And one of those is the seizures of the um, oligarch assets. I mean, the UK uh, has really cracked down. Um, Spain, France, and some other countries have seized the oligarchs' mega yachts, which is really making them very upset. Some of these things are two football fields long. One of them is about $800, $900 million, one of the Abramovich yachts. So, I mean, I think that there's a real big question here that sanctioning uh, oligarchs and other uh, financial elites is one thing. It's easy to sort of announce something, but to actually go after their assets. uh, You know, I've talked to some prosecutors, asset forfeiture people at the Justice Department, and that's a very uh, arduous process. Uh, The Russian uh, oligarchs have very, very big teams of lawyers, but I think it's something that needs to be done. I think if somebody uh, put it on Twitter, you need to sort of um, put some chains on their uh, propellers of their yachts. Um, You could probably seize half of Trump Tower. Uh, Miami, Los Angeles, um, New York have all been geo-targeted by the Treasury Department because there's such a huge number of uh, Russian oligarchs uh, holding billions of dollars in assets there. And I think that that's one way to really 
get their attention and in turn have them get Putin's attention. We also got this email from Larry who asks, with respect to sending aircraft to Ukraine, what is the problem? The United States sent sent aircraft to England prior to our involvement in World War II. This is certainly no different. Josh, can you give us some clarity about what we're hearing? Uh, yeah, I mean, there's a. That's a really. I'm um, glad you asked about that because there's a, a former National Security Council uh, expert on Russia, Alexander Vindman. I don't know if you remember him. He was the one that um, spoke out about Trump uh, and the um, you, you know holding off uh, Ukraine, giving them javelins. But he proposed yesterday. Uh, that we we reinstitute the lend lease program, which is what we did uh, in World War II, and that is basically uh, where the United States or, or NATO members uh, don't give them stuff; we just loan them stuff, and that includes military aid, uh, medium and long range air defense systems, anti tank weapons, uh, beyond the javelins that have already been provided. Uh, advanced extended um, anti-armor capabilities. And so by letting them borrow them, uh, essentially, uh, it's a way to do it a much quicker with a lot, a lot of, uh, without a lot of the red tape. And then, um, you know, then we figure it out later. So to me, that's surprising that that hasn't gotten more traction on the Hill and, and elsewhere. But that's a very good, he, he raises a very good point. But Anita, once again, is there the political appetite for that kind of move? Yeah, that's always the question, isn't it? Um, I, you know, it's it, it hasn't been so far, and it really doesn't sound like it. I mean, there's just sort of too many disagreements about that. And you know, what one thing that we've seen really from the beginning of this, d- despite the sort of partisan disagreements, you know, people, some some lawmakers saying the administration should be more aggressive, is that you know that there's this sort of reluctance. We saw it during the Trump administration. We've seen it from President Biden and his administration, even from members of Congress, that we just don't want the United States to get sort of sucked into another conflict, right? With with so many, um, you know, it's so many years in uh, in other conflicts, that's been sort of something that that even some Republicans and Democrats have agreed to. And, you know, that's this, obviously what we're talking about wouldn't necessarily mean that, but I think there's some concern that this could be a slippery slope. Well, let's move on to a new study from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. It shows that 4.3 million people in the U.S. quit or changed jobs in January. That's close to the record 4.5 million people who quit their jobs last November. Cheryl, what's at play here? Well, I think a number of things are at play. One is uh, the great resignation. You know, the pandemic has really kind of changed the way a lot of people think about their lives, especially young people, and people have been resigning their jobs in droves. Um, The other thing that's at play, though, is a very, very tight labor market. I mean, unemployment is down, and jobs are are plentiful and so we're seeing a lot of churn a lot of uh, not only quitting jobs but but changing jobs um, workers really have the upper hand in this economy I think the January report showed that employers hired six and a half million people but reported nearly twice that in job openings that month so um, you know I think there are these two things at work, maybe both flowing out of the pandemic. Well, on Wednesday, President Biden signed an executive order looking at cryptocurrency regulation. Anita, what's the administration's goal? You know, they really want to regulate um, the cryptocurrencies, and it's something that's you know sort of fractured at, at best right now. There's just not a lot 
of regulation there. And so what President Biden is saying is he's basically directing you know, federal agencies to produce a series of reports over months that's going to sort of lay out the future of the of the U.S. policy towards these digital assets and even sort of left open the door of the possibility of launching a federally issued digital dollar as as we reported that it was just something unthinkable, you know, even a couple years ago that how much this has changed, um, you know, digital assets in the global market now value roughly $1.85 trillion. So it's something that's really happened quickly. It's, it's something that President Biden and his administration have talked about doing, sort of left open the door to do, and they sort of want to uh, look at sort of securing the United States' position as a leader in, in this industry. And, and what, what some of these reports will show will, will really impact how they're regulated and what the future will be. Well, Josh, what do you think this could mean for cryptocurrency markets? Uh, I think it's a huge uh, step forward. I think it's it's huge news. Um, and I think, as Anita said, you know, this is another example of how the U.S. government was tr- kind of trying to ignore an issue for, for the longest time um, as it was becoming bigger and bigger. And now they're basically trying to get ahead of it. So cryptocurrency, um, $1.85 trillion uh, in digital assets around the world. It's a huge, uh, it, it's a, you know, it's it's a huge amount of money. Uh, but it's also a very significant national security threat. I mean, Russia, um, you know, has been accused of using cryptocurrency to evade sanctions, uh, ransomware, um, you know, by by Russia, other foreign powers, criminal organizations. They're all using cryptocurrency. So it is basically the coin of the realm of the the dark underworld uh, uh, gl- of the global economy, which is which is massive. So I think that what the Biden administration is trying to do is to um, regulate this in a way that allows innovation but mitigates risk uh, to consumers, investors, and businesses. That's the way uh, Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, and National Economic Council Director Brian Deese put it when they issued the statement. Well, lots of developments in the aftermath of January 6th this week. The first U.S. Capitol rioter, Guy Reffitt, was convicted this week in Texas, but he has reportedly said he will appeal. Josh, what can you tell us about the trial against Reffitt? Uh, well, this was a resounding victory for the Justice Department. Um, it only took the jury about three hours to come back with a conviction. Um, and so if he appeals, I believe he's probably got his work cut out for him. But I think that this is also a a significant bellwether for all the other cases. I mean, when the Justice Department was investigating all of these, there's 700 investigations or or more. Um, There's at least 700 people charged. You know, I think it's very concerning for them if they lose the first case. But in this case, they won big uh, and they won uh, pretty much everything they were trying to get. So this sends a message to everybody else who's been – charged, who's been, uh, who's on the verge of being prosecuted, who's under investigation, um, you know, that they could be in big trouble. You know, this is the way that the American people, at least if the jury is representative of them, feels about this. And a lot of the other cases are very similar. So, you know, these guys are probably scrambling to talk to their lawyers and see if they can, uh, you know, try to arrange some kind of plea agreements. Um, but so I do think it's a very significant victory for, for the Justice Department. Well, the Proud Boys leader, Enrique Tarrio, was also arrested and charged with conspiracy related to the attack on the Capitol, even though he wasn't in Washington, D.C. on January 6th. Cheryl, what does his arrest mean for other leaders of these extremist groups? Well, I think his arrest sends a clear warning signal to other leaders of the extremist groups that whether you were in Washington, D.C. or not, um, your work on behalf of these groups that led 
the attack on the Capitol, um, you'll, that you'll be held to account um, f- for that work. Um, as Josh said, this victory, th- these two things are not disconnected. The, the conviction of um, Guy Wesley Reffitt and the um, indictment of the Proud Boys leader are, are, are kind of connected. I think the Justice Department sees its cases building. Um, they had this big victory, and they are going to go after the people who planned and executed this insurrection as aggressively as they possibly can. Anita, all of the charges we've been mentioning are coming from the Department of Justice and their investigation. But what's the latest on the House Committee's investigation? Yeah, the the committee continues on. But remember, of course, the committee um, isn't going to be criminally charging anyone. So what we'll see from the House Committee is what we've been seeing, more and more information about what happened, not just that day, but, uh, you know, in the weeks prior to that. Uh, you know, we've seen that they've focused on President Trump. We've seen that they've focused on President Trump's top aides. What that does, I think, different, obviously, than Department of Justice criminal charges is paint us a picture, really tells us what was going on, who was involved, uh, and all that. It, it really puts those things together. So they continue to investigate and we continue to uh, see whether, uh, you know, as they ask people to come forward with documents, with with uh, talking to the investigators, some are cooperating, some aren't, and and we will eventually see it sort of a greater picture of what, of what happened. So let's turn to a spate of bills targeting LGBTQ young people and their families. They're making their way through state legislatures. On Tuesday, the Idaho House of Representatives passed a bill that would make it a crime for parents to seek gender-affirming health care for their transgender child. Local TV station KTVB in Boise interviewed Bree Latimer, a Boise State student who knew she wanted to transition from a young age. I mean, how old were you when you knew that you were a woman? That's how old I was, too. She says hormone replacements and puberty blockers changed her life for the better. Once you go through therapy, you figure out all these different things about yourself, things finally start making sense in hindsight. And then taking that step to starting hormone replacement therapy or puberty blockers. At that point, I feel like you are more sure of your identity than you ever have been in your entire life. I was suffering from anxiety, depression, and starting HRT, it's like, it it was like, it just kind of got turned off. Also this week, Florida's Republican-dominated legislature passed a bill that would ban teaching about sexual orientation and gender identity to K-3 students. Opponents have dubbed it the Don't Say Gay Bill. I think that you have seen the president speak passionately about his view that a bill like this, uh, a bill that would uh, discriminate against families, against kids, um, put these kids in a position of not getting the support they need um, at a time where that's exactly what they need, is discriminatory. It's uh, a form of bullying. Um, It is horrific. That was White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki condemning the bill on Wednesday. We got this tweet from Megan who says, I've been working a long time to curb anti-LGBTQ bullying by students in schools, only to have adults jump in to become the bullies. If this continues, I fear we are going to lose kids to suicide. Cheryl, there's the Idaho bill criminalizing parents who seek gender-affirming health care for their children. There's the Florida bill. Again, opponents call it the Don't Say Gay bill. 
Last week, Iowa banned transgender girls and women from competing in sports according to their gender identity. And there are 30 similar pieces of Republican-backed legislation that have been proposed around the country this year. What do these bills indicate to you about where we are right now? I think these bills indicate that the Republican Party is frankly playing politics with the lives of transgender people. I think we need to be clear. Um, The medical profession is behind gender-affirming care for transgender people. In February, the American Academy of Pediatrics said in a statement that for young people who identify as trans, studies show that this kind of care can reduce emotional distress and reduce the risk of suicide. Um, I think we're also seeing, frankly, solutions a solution without a problem, the the Iowa bill in particular banning trans girls from sports. This is a very, very rare instance. Um, a lot of conservatives have pointed to the case of Leah Thomas. She's a University of Pennsylvania swimmer and a trans woman who is about to compete in the NCAA uh, championships as a man when she was swimming on the men's team. Uh, she was sort of a middling swimmer, and now she is... Um, a very successful women's swimmer. But this is a very, very rare and unusual case. And what these kinds of bills do is really send a terrible message to young people who are struggling with their gender identity. And I might note that this is not high on the list of Americans' concerns. In the latest Gallup poll, fewer than 1% of Americans listed gay rights as a top concern for them. That's Cheryl Gay Stolberg, a Washington correspondent with the New York Times. Also with us today, Anita Kumar, the senior editor of Standards and Ethics at Politico, and Josh Meyer, a domestic security correspondent for USA Today. Cheryl, Anita, Josh, thanks for being with us today. 1A's audio engineer and sound designer is Mike Kidd. He gets technical assistance from Adrian Danhauser. Aileen Humphreys is the producer and editor of 1A On Demand, and Chris Castano is our digital editor. You're listening to the News Roundup. We'll discuss the week's biggest headlines from around the world in just a moment. This is 1A. Support for NPR and the following message come from BetterHelp, offering online counseling. BetterHelp therapist Hesu Joe knows that lockdown has been hard on us as humans. We as people are hardwired to connect with others, which is why this whole time is so difficult. The connection that happens between people can be very powerful and how healing it can be to have a healthy relationship with someone. To get matched with a counselor within 48 hours and save 10%, go to BetterHelp.com slash 1A. You're listening to the 1A Podcast. It's time for the global edition of the News Roundup. It's been a week of some political drama in South Korea. There's a prospect that Venezuela might be let back in from the cold and a remarkable story from an icy seabed. But of course, one story dominates all others. It's just an awful, awful scene. And and these people are the lucky ones. I'm just going to help her carry this bag a second. Excuse me, John. A lot of these people have no idea where they're going to go once they cross this bridge. They know that they're in relative safety once they do it. We're still hearing the steady thud of artillery in the distance. And the fear is, John, it's just going to keep getting closer. 
That's CNN's Clarissa Ward. And thanks to a number of foreign news teams, all of us here can see for ourselves the devastation currently being brought to bear on the people of Ukraine. Let's get to it with our panel. Our guests today are Dave Lawler, World News Editor for Axios. Dave, great to have you back. Great to be with you. David Rennie, Beijing Bureau Chief for The Economist. David, always a pleasure. Hello. And Sean Carberry. Sean is the founder of the foreign policy website Timony One. He's reported from more than two dozen countries, including Iraq, Syria, Libya, and Yemen. And he was NPR's correspondent in Afghanistan. Sean, thanks for joining us. Great to be with you, Jen. So, Dave, I know it's hard to know where to begin, but what do we know about how Putin's invasion is going and the efforts to agree on a ceasefire? Yes. So in terms of how the invasion is going, we still have Russian troops massing near Kiev, the capital. Uh, They have made some progress in recent days, but uh, the Pentagon continues to say that they're stalled outside of the city for the time being. Other cities around the country are surrounded, including Mariupol and southeastern uh, Ukraine, where we have a pretty terrible humanitarian situation unfolding. In terms of the ceasefire side, we did get a meeting between the foreign ministers of Ukraine and Russia. That's the highest level at which they've met during the crisis. They did not resolve anything on the ceasefire front, though they did discuss the uh, the prospect of the president's potentially meeting Putin and Zelensky. Uh, for the time being, the U.S. does not think that Putin is serious, uh, seriously looking for an off-ramp here. They expect him to continue to push forward. Uh, but there are a few countries attempting to mediate and try to get to some form of ceasefire in the coming days. Well, there's been international outrage at Russia's decision to bomb a maternity hospital this week. Western reporters asked Russia's foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, to justify the attack on Wednesday. This is how he responded. With regard to the maternity hospital, it's not the first time we see pathetic outcries concerning the so-called atrocities perpetrated by the Russian military. The public opinion is manipulated worldwide. Today I saw the reports of your channel and other Western media, very emotional, but unfortunately the other side is not looked at. Sean, what more do we know about this attack? Well, as you heard, the the Russians are denying that they essentially attacked a a hospital. They have said that it had been taken over by uh, militias and and extremists, and therefore it was was targeted for that reason. Uh, But witness accounts, footage that, you know, we've all been seeing over uh, the last couple of days show, you know, very dramatically that there were pregnant women, children uh, in this facility that witnesses say was uh, struck multiple times and uh, resulted in, so far, at least three deaths, um, more than a dozen injured, and uh, you know people are still uh, you know looking into the the damage from it. But it was clearly a case of a medical facility that was struck, and uh, it adds to a list. Uh, so far, the the World Health Organization says somewhere on the order of two dozen medical facilities in the country have been struck, uh, resulting in a number of deaths. And, and unfortunately, this is, uh, you know, this is not something new. Um, you know, people who have followed Syria, you know, will note that uh, there were hundreds of medical facilities struck in Syria 
largely by Russian airstrikes uh, over the years when Russia came to the aid of the Syrian regime. Uh, so th this is a known tactic uh, by, by Russia of targeting these kinds of facilities and uh, a matter of, of terrorizing communities on the ground like this. We got this question from Gordon, who tweets, why isn't the EU doing more to help Ukraine? This war is an attack against all democracies. David, what kind of support has the EU put forward so far? So actually, by the standards of the European Union, which has had wars in its neighborhood many times, unfortunately, the EU has been incredibly active and incredibly quick. And it's not just the EU as a club that has been lifting visa restrictions so that Ukrainian refugees can come in without uh, difficulties. They've been sending in uh, armaments actually as the EU, paying for weapons and ammunition to send in, which is almost unheard of, but also members of the European Union. Countries like Germany, which have a long history because of their own tragic past in World War II, but they traditionally would never send weapons or ammunition into an active conflict. That has been torn up out the window. You're seeing all kinds of European countries vastly increasing their defence budgets, that, you know, they've been resisting American calls to spend more on their own defense for years and years. Suddenly, overnight, that's changing. And the EU has been working hand in glove with the Biden administration, with the UK, uh, with countries like Japan to impose these really crippling sanctions. And so I think actually, for once, the EU has been really taking people by surprise. And I can tell you, I'm sitting here in Beijing, capital of a country which is Russia's biggest and best friend right now. China is pretty much openly supporting Russia. And Chinese scholars and government advisors are shocked and frankly dismayed to see the Europeans who they thought were kind of weaklings and decadent and cowards actually siding with America and imposing these really tough sanctions on, uh, on, uh, on, on Russia. So, you know, clearly everyone could be doing more. There are arguments about individual things like, you know, why are the Americans not allowing Poland to deliver some old Soviet era MiG fighters? But generally, by the EU standards, and I speak as someone who covered the EU from Brussels for five years... They're, they're really playing it uh, extraordinarily tough right now. And David, I'm interested to hear from you how much coverage the war is getting in China and what message President Xi is, is sending about the conflict. So there's an official line, which is that China is a high-minded, peace-loving, neutral player here that might even be willing to mediate, and it's very upset to see fighting and suffering. That is a cover for the fact that this is basically a pro-Russian, anti-American moment. They are pumping out propaganda about, uh, I'm basically repeating in many cases, just pure Russian propaganda straight from, you know, Russia Today and Sputnik and and and, uh, and TASS. You know, so the Chinese public in this very, very strictly censored media environment that I live in, uh, they're being told that Russian soldiers are being incredibly restrained, that they're not targeting civilians, that they went in in an act of self-defense because the Americans started this war by pushing the boundaries of NATO right up against Russia, leaving Russia no choice but to defend itself. And now the neo-Nazis uh, who run Ukraine are shelling their own civilians to create war crimes to try and trick the world. And we saw the main evening state news, uh, watched by hundreds of millions of people, pumping out Russian disinformation about the fact that the Americans supposedly have biological warfare laboratories in Ukraine that are researching how to spread animal viruses as weapons. The Americans have explained very carefully this is a program across the whole former Soviet bloc uh, basically to do things like study animal diseases for public health purposes. In fact, watching the, the, the Chinese TV news tonight, they had this doomy broadcast about these dangerous sort of uh, bioweapons labs funded by America. They then showed screenshots of the American government documents. If you can read the English, which I can, obviously you can, 
they're basically just ordinary public health documents, the American CDC studying things like animal diseases. So it is pure disinformation. And I'm afraid that around me here in China, people are extremely pro-Putin. And that's basically because they're anti-American. They don't really care about Ukraine at all. This is about America, the great enemy. And it's amazing to see China coming out so openly as an anti-American superpower. Here's a tweet we got from Kimberly, who says, I fear for President Zelensky and his family. What might happen to them if Kiev is captured? Dave, do we know? President Zelensky himself has said that he believes he's target number one for uh, Russian um, Russians who are already in the capital. He said saboteurs basically were hunting for him in the capital. Um, so he is very well aware that his safety is in danger here, uh, obviously, as David was just saying, the line from the Kremlin is that Ukraine is run by Nazis, basically, uh, which is, of course, not the case, but uh, doesn't bode very well for how they would treat Zelensky if they were to get into a scenario where Kiev were uh, to begin to fall. Uh, I should say that they're, the Kremlin officially now says that they don't, they're not looking for regime change. Uh, in Kiev that they can live with the Zelensky government. We don't actually know if that is the case, but that's a bit of a shift on their side. But certainly, I think uh, I think the listener is right to be concerned about Zelensky's safety because uh, it's incredibly uh, brave and incredibly dangerous to do what he's doing, which is staying in the center of the city, making pretty clear where he is day to day at a time when, when um, the Russians are, are closing in on that city. Sean, very briefly, we've got a, a little under a minute here. Vice President Kamala Harris was in Poland this week. She's in Romania today. Why did this plan to send MiG fighter jets to Ukraine never get off the ground? Well, it, it was something that was uh, a bit of a long shot to begin with, just because of the logistics of getting them into Ukraine. Who would send them in so that they wouldn't be viewed as coming directly from NATO or the United States in a potential escalation? And so uh, Poland then decided to send them to Germany, have the U.S. send them in. The U.S. said that was a non-starter. So it's it's more about this concern about not escalating uh, the conflict, and we'll see whether they find other ways to get aircraft or, or larger weapons into Ukraine. On Tuesday, President Biden announced the U.S. is banning all future imports of Russian oil. We're entering the third week of this war, and big U.S. companies are suspending their operations in Russia. Sean, what signs are there that any of these sanctions are are really hitting home? Well, the signs are that the the ruble has crashed dramatically. Uh, There's been significant constriction in uh, in the economy and investment. And day-to-day life for for Russian citizens has gotten far more difficult in terms of accessing basics of of food and cash and things like that. Uh, the, The real question is, though, are these sanctions taking a bite in Putin's calculus? And so far... Uh, you know, there hasn't been any clear evidence that the uh, the sanctions have changed his approach to, to what he's doing in Ukraine. You know, obviously, we just had the uh, uh, the president, uh, President Biden, announcing moments ago the revocation of uh, trade status with with Russia. So another hit that uh, will be taken in coordination with, with allies. So, uh, you know, the pressure is dialing up and certainly the effects are, are there in terms of the economy and uh, how the Russian people are, are feeling the bite of sanctions. Um, but again, we have yet to see any evidence that it's, uh, it's changing Putin's approach and, and what outcome he is seeking. 
I want to turn to a conversation we had earlier this week with Bill Browder. He went from being one of the biggest foreign investors in Russia to one of President Putin's most outspoken critics. He says the U.S. must bankrupt Russia so Putin can't pay for a war. So that would mean sanctioning more oligarchs, cutting off 100 percent of Russian banks from the SWIFT system and stopping Europe from buying oil. Once we've done that, Vladimir Putin really becomes financially untenable. And if he becomes financially untenable, we don't know what's going to happen inside Russia. Maybe he'll survive for many years like the uh, North Korean leaders have. But what what I can say is that it's extremely expensive to run a, a huge military operation like they're doing in Ukraine. And if they don't have money, it, they'll eventually not be able to run that operation. And that has to be our objective because um, otherwise we're going to end up ultimately ourselves being at war with Russia. And this week, Roman Abramovich was named as one of of the Russian oligarchs sanctioned by the U.K. government. It's thrown the soccer club he owned for years into crisis. Now it can't trade players or sell tickets to matches. Fans of Chelsea Football Club were not happy. Can't buy players, sell players. So what does that leave for our club? It's basically gone. I think it's an unfair sanction simply because, A, he's putting one and a half billion um, into the club, which he says he's not going to take back. And also he says he's not going to profit from the sale. So I don't get these sanctions. I just think they're absolutely mad. David, whether we're talking about a soccer club or McDonald's or Apple or any company that's been caught up because they have businesses in Russia, what contribution do you think they have in the push to make Russia a pariah state? Well, I think there's two separate things. So some of these oligarchs like Robin Abramovich and his his loss of his football club, although it can carry on playing for the moment, that is being described by the British government as an attempt to make sure that oligarchs who, in the name of, in the words of uh, uh, the British Foreign Secretary, the blood of the Ukrainian people is on their hands and they should hang their heads in shame. So there's a kind of moral demonstration going on. But actually, what, the clip that you just played of your guest Bill Browder earlier, I think, points to something very serious that is also going on, which is I had a conversation with a senior Western official this week who said literally the same as Bill Browder that. The calculation of the American government, uh, the U.S. government uh, and uh, EU and allies is that it's Putin is spending about 20 billion U.S. dollars a day on this war. And he has about 20 days of cash left. Now, that conversation is about four days ago. So we're now 16 days if those numbers are right. And the plan is to bankrupt him so that he cannot finance his war. And Sean is right that we don't we haven't yet seen these sanctions bite, but some of them are designed to start biting you know, fairly soon over time. And essentially, one way of seeing these sanctions is that the Russian economy is being decoupled from the rest of the world. So we're already seeing uh, the Lada car factory going uh, going down because they couldn't get uh, the parts they need to stop to keep building cars. We're seeing Russian airliners being grounded in huge numbers because most of them are actually leased from uh, European companies, often in Ireland for tax reasons. They can't now legally fly. Spare parts can't go into keep oil refineries up and running. Those Western oil companies that have left were mostly there uh, because they had the technology to do drilling in hard to drill places. So once they leave, even if China rolls in and starts buying more oil and gas, if this carries on, those oil and gas fields are going to start seizing up because they don't have the technology. So over the kind of months to come, I think there is an absolute intention. Now, we'll see whether the unity holds as oil and gas prices rise and people start to suffer. But at the moment, I think it is clear that the Biden administration European Union governments, the British and other allies, their plan is to break the Russian economy and make it clear that this is what is hap- this is what happens if in the 21st century you, behi- you behave like a 19th century imperialist and invade another country for no reason whatsoever. And it's an extraordinary thing that we're witnessing quite different from the other sanctions we've seen on Iran or Venezuela over recent years. 
Let's circle back to the sports piece for a moment. We've seen teams refuse to play in Russia. Teams from Russia have been kicked out of the Soccer World Cup and the Paralympics. And then there's American Brittany Griner, the seven-time WNBA All-Star. She's been detained in Russia after officials claim they found hashish oil in her luggage. Greiner plays for a women's basketball team that competes in the Russian Premier League. As a Texan, one of her representatives is Democratic Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee, who's been speaking to MSNBC. We can't let the brutality of Putin, you know, I started by saying this is his war. There was no vote for this. He has 6,000 Russians in jail right now, and he Mm -hmm. continues to create a World War III atmosphere in Ukraine. So I think we have to step in and exert our sovereignty over our citizens and demand that they be released. We got this email from Cavi who says there's nowhere near enough coverage of what's happening to WNBA All-Star and Olympic gold winner Brittany Griner since she was detained in Russia. I urge you to dive deeper and I'm eager to hear more from experts about what's at stake for her. Dave, what is at stake for Brittany Griner? Certainly her freedom is at stake at the moment. Um, Unfortunately, this is a very bad time if you're a high-profile American to be arrested in Russia because uh, she could be seen by by the Kremlin as basically leverage uh, at a time when when they don't have much with the West and they're facing uh, all sorts of sanctions and issues. There is, in terms of the the media coverage around this, it's an interesting scenario uh, because both we should you know raise this issue. We should talk about it. This is a high, this is an American who's who's in trouble. Uh, but there's also some speculation that her side might not want there to be a lot of media coverage because basically. The more coverage there is, the bigger chip she may look like for the you know from the Russian perspective. So we also don't actually know exactly where she's being held. We don't know really much about the condition she's in. But yes, so she's being held. We also, of course, and we should say we don't know if she brought hashish oil into Russia. We don't you know we have no idea of of the the viability of whatever legal case there would be around this. So it's she's she's sort of in darkness at the moment uh, over there. And um, yeah, hopefully the the. The U.S. is able to bring some pressure to bear behind the scenes on this issue. Well, on a related note, next week we'll be talking about something called sports washing. The term was coined by Amnesty International back in 2018 in reference to authoritarian regimes using sports to improve their public image. Russia hosted the World Cup that year. President Vladimir Putin consistently has used sports to improve his country's image at home and abroad. Well, Europe's leaders met for talks this week in France's historic Versailles Palace. They discussed the European Union's relationship with Ukraine, but stopped short of offering immediate membership. Here's European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen. At this summit, we will rethink European defense. We will rethink energy. We have to get rid of the dependency of Russian fossil fuels. And for that, we need massive investment. We want a free and democratic Ukraine with whom we share a common destiny. David, it's been said that Putin has been looking for a way to fracture the European Union, and clearly tensions exist. But you said the the European Union has really come together. So has this actually helped to unify and deepen the resolve of the 27 members? For the moment. And, you know, so as, as I said, I was based in Brussels covering the European Union for five years. So, you know, I... The European Union has a habit of raising your hopes and then dashing them because it does always manage to find differences of opinion. Um, One point is it would be a huge deal. I think sometimes uh, in my years covering American politics, sometimes people think it's it's not that difficult to let a country into the EU. It's an enormous deal 
to let someone into the EU. Not very, very different from letting another country become a 51st state of America. You know, you get free movement. You can people from Ukraine would immediately be able to live and work wherever they liked in the European Union. So I don't think it's going to get in any moment soon. What we are seeing, though, is really interesting uh, factors like countries which have been kind of the grumpiest members of the European Union. So a country like Hungary, which has its own authoritarian, frankly, pro-Putin Prime Minister Viktor Orban, he is now dealing with a flood of Ukrainian refugees who are coming over the border into U- uh, into Hungary. The same with the uh, hard right government in Poland, which is dealing with now more than a million refugees who've come into Poland. And suddenly they're getting rather interested in things like European Union burden sharing, which is the kind of thing they scorned when they were being asked to take Syrians who had come in at the other end of Europe in 2015. And in fact, if you look at the handling of the refugee crisis by the European Union as a whole, it has been amazingly generous. Now, some people are saying that there's an element of, because these are white people who look rather like their neighbours, we're letting them in in a way that we didn't let in uh, people from Syria. But frankly, the European Union is being incredibly generous. We've cut, we've got over 2 million Ukrainian refugees turning up in European countries. Uh, I was talking to diplomats here in Beijing who are saying in their countries, you know, people are turning up at the border in their in their private cars just taking people as they come over the border and saying, come and stay in my home. And so some governments like Romania had prepared places to take refugees and then found that there weren't as many as they were expecting because by the time the government turned up with buses to kind of take them to shelters, just regular Romanians had taken them into their homes. So there is an extraordinary sense that Europe really feels this war as an attack on everything that Europe exists for. You know, there is this sense that after World War II, the European Union came into being so that this kind of sort of absolute aggression and sort of trampling of borders on European soil could not happen again. So that shock is at least for the moment driving really unusual unity. But it's early days, energy prices are going to rise, the politics of having all these refugees is going to get more difficult. So we will see. But for now, Europe is actually behaving very impressively and frankly, a lot more impressively than my own country, Britain, which is being incredibly ungenerous. The UN Refugee Agency said today more than two and a half million people have fled Ukraine since the invasion two weeks ago. More than half have gone to neighboring Poland. Sean, how are Poland and neighboring EU countries handling the influx of migrants? And and as David alluded to, how much concern is there just about the availability of resources at this point? Yeah, so far they've been able to triage the situation reasonably well. Uh, There's been a surge of humanitarian actors and supplies to the border areas uh, around western Ukraine. And uh, it's been amazing stories of just, you know, local people in Poland, Moldova, uh, and Hungary who have just stepped up, who are housing people, who are donating, you know, food, supplies, anything they can do to, to help people to deal with uh, housing them locally or getting them to train stations and moving them on. So th- there's been an impressive effort, and uh, the international community is is pledging and trying to uh, direct substantial resources to it. Uh, you know, but again, as as David was alluding to about uh, European unity at the moment, the question is, how long can this effort be sustained? Uh, will the resources match the need? And you know, this is not the only humanitarian situation that's going on in the world right now. So. Uh, the the money, the resources are being spread thin across Europe dealing with Ukraine. You still have Afghanistan, you have Yemen.
Yemen, you have Ethiopia. Uh, so the, the humanitarian community is, is heavily stretched at the moment. And, you know, there's no sign that the Ukraine crisis is going to end quickly. So, uh, you know, there, there's a tremendous concern that the system will be overwhelmed in the coming weeks. Well, meanwhile, the U.K. has taken a markedly different approach. Fewer than 1,000 visa applications have been awarded to Ukrainians thus far. Prime Minister Boris Johnson was asked specifically about the slow approval process. What we will do is have a very, very generous and uh, an open approach. But what we won't do is simply abandon controls altogether. And there are very good reasons for that. If you look at the uh, the situation in the EU. They have a, as you know, they have a border-free zone. They can't actually uh, impose controls even if they, they wanted to. We have a different system, and I think it's sensible, given what's going on in Ukraine, to make sure that we have uh, some basic ability to check uh, who is coming in and who isn't. David, you were heading towards a critique of how the UK is handling refugees out of Ukraine. Go ahead. Look, the British government has behaved shamefully. It's behaved shamefully on a political level. Uh, Boris Johnson is basically the man who delivered Brexit for voters whose one of their biggest concerns was to, as he said, take back control of our borders. Uh, So the idea of opening the borders would be unthinkable. For him to kind of accuse the Europeans of only letting um, two million people into their territory because they couldn't stop them anyway is a kind of really shameful Uh, from a country like the UK, which has let in, as you say, fewer than a thousand people, we're still insisting they get visas. So in addition to the kind of political mean-spiritedness of Brexit Britain, there's also been a dose of utter incompetence, where uh, the people in charge of issuing visas were saying that Ukrainians had to turn up and apply in person in places like Paris, uh, which they couldn't even get to. They couldn't apply at the French port nearest the English Channel, Calais. Uh, There was you know, all this kind of mean-spirited briefing that maybe there would be terrorists among them or security threats and we couldn't just let them in. We're demanding that Ukrainians prove that they have uh, connections with someone who lives in the UK. It really is shocking. And even the right-wing anti-immigration tabloid newspapers are saying that it's looking a bit shabby and shocking, which is why you're seeing the British government now moving. But I'm afraid Brexit Britain's claim that that they left the European Union to become global Britain is being proved, uh, no, it's Little Britain, and it's shameful. One of the most remarkable stories of the week was found 10,000 feet under a very icy sea. Scientists found one of the greatest ever undiscovered shipwrecks more than 100 years after it sank. The Endurance, the lost vessel of Antarctic explorer Sir Ernest Shackleton, was found at the bottom of the Weddell Sea. The ship was crushed by sea ice and sank in 1915, forcing Shackleton and his men to make an astonishing escape on foot and in small boats. Video of the remains show Endurance to be in remarkable condition. International law means the wreck itself is a designated monument, so it can't be moved. I want to move on to Afghanistan in a moment, but first this tweet from Rickward, who says, my brother's wife is Taiwanese, and she says the Ukraine conflict has her country worried. She says if the U.S. doesn't want a conflict with Russia because of nukes, how can we possibly defend them against China, who also has nukes? Dave, what questions has this war in Ukraine raised? Well, I think both the Chinese side and the Taiwanese side have tried to say that there's no link between the two. The Chinese uh, side, because they say the Taiwan issue is a domestic issue. They say Taiwan is part of China. uh, And if they were to move in and restore control in their view, then uh, they would not be invading in the way that Russia has invaded Ukraine. And of course, the Taiwanese side says there's no uh, correlation between the two because Taiwan would be more difficult to move into. There's It's an island, uh, but also because it's so geopolitically important as uh, sort of the global hub of the semi 
semiconductor uh, production. So, uh, but yes, certainly there's there's reason to be concerned if you're sitting in Taiwan, if you're looking at you know a nuclear armed superpower uh, invade a smaller neighbor. That is, uh, there there are some parallels there, and I think the U.S. will certainly want uh, to take steps to try to reassure Taiwan or to warn China uh, that it shouldn't follow the pattern that that we're seeing play out between Russia and Ukraine. And David, from from China, what does it look like from there? Well, it's fascinating. I mean, Dave is absolutely right that, that there are all sorts of reasons to worry if you're Taiwanese at the site of Ukraine. But actually, you can flip it on its head and say that, frankly, Xi Jinping, the Chinese leader, should also be worried because when he hears Vladimir Putin saying Ukraine isn't a real country, it's actually part of Russia and they will welcome us and this will be a quick war. That's the kind of thing that Xi Jinping and Chinese leaders say about Taiwan. It turns out that when you invade a country, it really is willing to resist in a big way. And all of the things that the Russians said about the Ukrainians, they were too soft, they were sitting there, cafes, they were you know, not willing to fight. People say about the Taiwanese. And frankly, the Taiwanese public opinion has been a bit complacent about the dangers of China. A lot of young Taiwanese don't want to join the military, don't want to do national service. They can't see the point. That is changing. There is a big debate in Taiwan right now about maybe we've been too complacent. And those sanctions we were talking about, they really matter too, because China is an economy 10 times the size of Russia. And in a way that Russia is not, China is incredibly plugged into global supply chains and commerce. And they are watching the West try to turn off the Russian economy like it's flicking a switch to punish them. If the same thing was tried with China, that would be just, you know, on an unimaginably greater scale, a big deal. So hopefully in Beijing, they're looking at this and thinking, actually, there are costs that are being applied to Russia that might be applied to us. Well, let's turn to another humanitarian crisis overseas getting significantly less attention than Ukraine right now. In Afghanistan, the UN says more than 20 million people are suffering from acute hunger. That's more than half the people who live there. Conditions on the ground have rapidly deteriorated since the Taliban's takeover last year. Sean, what impact have economic sanctions on Afghanistan's government have on civilians across the country? Well, they've been substantial. And this has been the challenge over the last six months where the United States and and other countries don't want to reward the Taliban regime by lifting sanctions and allowing them access to Afghan reserves and have tried to find alternate ways to channel assistance to the population. And uh, there have been pledges of aid. The United States has has made specific pledges. The UN uh, has called for, for funds and aid groups are operating, but are still very cautious because even though there have been exemptions granted so that aid organizations can move money into Afghanistan, can pay their staff, their concerns about running afoul of of sanctions, and so the the situation there is that uh, aid is still not reaching a lot of the population. The financial need is is not being met, and for the the regular Afghan people, there's really no private economy uh, of any substance in the country at this point because of the sanctions and cut off from from financial institutions. And so you have that crisis, and to show how connected things are, um, one of the major sources of food for Afghanistan is actually Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine and Russia are, are large exporters of wheat and other food crops that go to places like Afghanistan, Ethiopia, Syria, 
And so now there are, there are estimates that there are um, you know, millions of tons of wheat and maize that are basically frozen from export from Ukraine at the moment. And so that's reducing the supply and driving up the cost. So, uh, you know, the Ukraine situation is having a huge ripple effect across these other humanitarian uh, crises, such as Afghanistan. I want to hear from each of you on this. There's been significant criticism from media watchers about how some journalists talked about previous conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan compared to how the war in Ukraine is covered now. We received an email from Janet in Michigan that speaks to this idea. She writes, I have lived long enough to have seen many world crises unfold. Never have I been as emotionally distraught as I have over the current crisis. I wondered why. And then it hit me. These suffering people are blonde, blue-eyed like me and my children. They dress like me. This has revealed in me deep prejudices that I never knew I had. This adds to my grief, but I have hope I will grow from this insight. And again, that came from 1A listener Janet in Michigan. Uh, Sean, I want to come to you first on this. What role do you think ethnicity and and identity have played in, in media coverage of this conflict? I, I think there's no question it, it has played a role. And uh, that's, I think, why there has been a discussion about this, why there have been some journalists who have made some very uh, inelegant to be diplomatic comments uh, along these lines and talking about, you know, these kinds of things don't happen in, in civilized places. And just, you know, a variety of comments that have been very uh, dismissive and uh, condescending to some of the places that have experienced crisis. And, and you know, to be honest, it, what's come to mind, uh, the, you know, the old program, The West Wing, I just remember there was an episode years ago where there was a crisis going on in a fictional country in Africa and the president asked an advisor something effective, why does the life of an American matter more than the life of a person in that country? And the advisor says, I don't know, but it does. And that kind of captured that uh, that sense that we're seeing here, that, that people who do not look the same are not valued the same. Uh, and, and so this is a, a real phenomenon. And I think people in Afghanistan in particular have been voicing uh, frustration about the fact that all this money and effort and attention is going to Ukraine. And meanwhile, they've been starving for six months and are still waiting to find out if they're ever going to get access to their money. Dave, I wonder if for you that also says something about who who is in media. We've had a lot of conversations in recent years about the need to diversify newsrooms. So when people say, oh, this coverage looks this way because we're talking about people who look like us. Well, not everybody in a newsroom (laughs) looks the same. So what does it say about how our institutions are structured? Yeah, I think that's that's exactly right. And and just to uh, piggyback on Sean's point, when we say this isn't the kind of thing you expect uh, in Europe, then we're obviously not thinking about much of European history because obviously there have been wars there. So why do we think this is something that happens in Africa or um, you know the Middle East, but not in Europe? When of course there ha- there's a long history of wars in Europe. So there there is some institutional uh, bias there. Um, you know, I, I think there's there's a reason uh, that this story is getting a lot more coverage than the war in in Ethiopia, which Sean mentioned, which has been raging and has been um, uh, in some ways equally horrific on a humanitarian scale, but has been getting less coverage. So yeah, I think we we probably do have to do some soul searching about this. David, I want to hear from you on this as well. 
Look, I think it's true. I've, I've been a foreign correspondent for 27 years now, and my whole career, it's true. You know, if a ferry sinks uh, in the English Channel, that is absolutely gigantic news. If it sinks off Bangladesh, it's not. And it's very hard to see any explanation for that other than racism. And, and you're right, the diversity in newsrooms is one way to try to tackle that. I think there's the blunt reality that if you have people who've lived in a country which has civil war for 50 years and they live in dire poverty, another bit of disaster hitting them is less shocking than a rich world city being shelled. And and that's not completely shocking. I mean, that just is, you know, the, the, the transformation is is there and visible. I also think that we like to impose very simple stories on this. I, I mean, I covered the Afghan war in 2001 when I was based in Beijing last time. And I remember, you know, I arrived and everyone was talking about 9-11 and the World Trade Center. One of the biggest shocks of being there on the ground was meeting sort of Afghan fighters for the Northern Alliance who didn't even know that the World Trade Center had been hit by airplanes. They didn't even know about what had happened in New York because for them, this was just a long running civil war. And so you realize we impose our own stories and narratives about good people, bad people, our people, the others, but that's not how the world works. And, and that's why the work of foreign correspondents, you're quite right, we need to sort of constantly test our assumptions and our prejudices. And Sean, when I hear David say that the expectation of, of the viewing or listening or reading public about a, a tragedy hitting one place as opposed to another, it also makes me think about who we extend empathy to and who we don't and how that can shape reporting. Yes, absolutely. And, and and again, there are factors of identity and, and who people relate to. Uh, and there are, are perceptions. Again, Afghanistan has had, you know, decades of, of conflict. And so there there is a, uh, a dismissiveness uh, to it in in some ways. And I do think, though, that there there is one difference in in Ukraine than some of the other conflicts um, which which is interesting which is part of it is you know the the US went into Afghanistan to go after the Taliban who had harbored al-Qaeda and so there was a real sense that it was a a just conflict against bad guys the Iraq war a little more complicated but still a notion that a a bad dictator was was being taken out here in, in Ukraine, you have a democratic, Western-leaning country that wants to be uh, part of the EU, wants to be part of NATO, that is being attacked by an authoritarian regime under absolutely false pretenses. So there is a bit of a difference in the narrative and the facts of this conflict that do make it a little bit more outrageous. But that in no way dismisses the fact that um, there are still racial and identity factors about how people look at places in conflict and people just expect certain countries in you know, the, the Middle East or the Southern Hemisphere to be well, in let me conflict. Ju- let me jump in here and remind people we're talking to Sean Carberry from Time and E1, David Lawler with World News Editor for Axios, and David Rennie with The Economist. I'm Jen White. You're listening to 1A. And to your point, Sean, we got this tweet from Dan who says, I'm sure there is favorable coverage because Ukrainians are European, but it's also a conventional war. There's a clear bad guy and a unified nation fighting for its survival. That's different than other recent conflicts. Uh, I want to make sure we get to a couple of other stories before we wrap. South Korea elected a new president by a razor-thin margin of less than a percentage point. President-elect Yoon Suk-yeol is part of the conservative People Power Party, and he's new to politics. Now, Dave, these are very... Tell, what more can you tell us about the president-elect? 
Sure. So he's a career prosecutor. Uh, he's best known for putting a former uh, president of South Korea in jail. Uh, he is not particularly popular, but slightly more popular than his opponent. This was a sort of uh, almost a you know gutter war between two quite unpopular candidates. He'll replace uh, President Moon, whose trademark issue was trying to bring some form of detente with North Korea, and he's likely to reverse that policy. He's much more of a hardliner on North Korea, on China, and he really wants to build up the military alliance with the United States. And what kind of policy changes does this mean for this new conservative presidency, David? So it's, if he carries through some of the things he said on the campaign trail, uh, I mean, he talked about a preemptive strike on North Korea. We assume he won't do that. But he did talk about in, in, in buying another American anti-missile defense system. Now, the last time one of those was installed in South Korea, the Chinese reacted with such rage that they basically boycotted some of the biggest South Korean companies. He's also talked about being interested in the Quad, that grouping uh, of America and Japan and India and Australia. Again, that'd be very destabilizing uh, in Asia. China would absolutely hate it. And so we will see. It was an ugly campaign. He was also, I'm afraid, he won in part by playing on the weirdly vicious anti-feminist uh, sentiment among some young men in Korea. So it was a pretty depressing election. Politics is a rough business in South Korea. I was just looking at a report that every single living former president uh, in South Korea has ended up jailed for corruption. Uh, so it is a rough business. Uh, he gets one term and who knows where he'll end up. Well, let's end on news out of Venezuela. On Tuesday, Venezuela re- released two American political prisoners and a move that some are saying may have economic motives. Sean, what do we know about these prisoners? So one of the prisoners was a member of the group referred to as the the Sitgo Six, uh, petroleum uh, company workers who were uh, seized in in 2017. Uh, So one of them was released, the other five uh, were not. Um, The the other was a uh, Cuban-American tourist who who was detained in, uh, in Venezuela. So Two, two released, there are, there are clearly um, others who are still in detention in Venezuela and conflicting reports about exactly what was discussed among this U.S. delegation that went to, to negotiate this and whether it's tied to uh, any sanctions relief and getting more Venezuelan oil into the markets. U.S. officials have been downplaying that, saying that this was simply a a hostage negotiation and release, but a a lot of questions about what this means in the current context and whether there's a softening to to Venezuela to get more oil on the market. In just a sentence or two, I'd love to hear from each of you a story you think hasn't gotten enough attention this week. Dave? Uh, So actually one that uh, in Guatemala, there is a new law uh, relating to abortion where women can go to jail for up to 10 years. uh, And also the the new, uh, there's a new law on gay marriage, uh, making it explicitly illegal in the country. So uh, a socially conservative law from a conservative and unpopular president there. David, what about from you? Uh, Omicron is kicking off in the mainland and uh, the mainland has bad vaccines. And uh, because it's been only locking down, doesn't have immunity. If it really takes off, then that is going to be a gigantic story. I hope they can lock it down. They've just locked down a city of 9 million people tonight. Uh, But if it takes off, it is going to be an absolutely appalling story. 
Sean, we'll have to hold your story for next time. That's David Rennie, Beijing Bureau Chief for The Economist. Dave Lawler is World News Editor for Axios. And Sean Carberry is the founder of the foreign policy website Taimini One. He was NPR's correspondent in Afghanistan. Thanks to you all. 1A's managing producer is Paige Osborne. Jacqueline Hill is our senior producer. Mike Kidd is our sound designer and engineer. And Barb Anguiano produces our podcast. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend. We'll talk more soon. This is 1A.